Hello, horse fans, and hello, mystery fans. Welcome to the show that was designed for you. This is Horse Mysteries, a show about horses and mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. My name's Lisa Williamson. And the idea of this show normally is that Lisa Williamson is the horse expert and also a true crime fanatic. And I am a kind of a person with a passing interest in, in both things. So we're going to be switching roles up this time, though. I'm going to be going to be pretending that I'm the expert and uh, Lisa will be playing the person with a passing interest. <laughs> so uh, what is this? What is this one called today, dear? The, the Lost Generation. The Lost Generation. Right. So these are about horses that fought in World War One. Mm, must be. Yep. <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, you know, I'd like to uh, do a little thing before we get on to the, the meat of the show. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, starter course, as it were. Uh, horse bits. And so today I have a question for you, which is um, to do with the horse's ear. And I wonder how a horse uses its ears, because I feel like it's a uses it in a particular way. Okay. Yeah. There would be two particular ways that a horse uses its ear. And I would say the first one is because the horse is a prey animal and they have to know when the bad guy's coming. And so, yeah, the, the horse's ear is kind of long and slender and hollow and sits up on top of their head, but it can also swivel around. And so it can get sound from any direction pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so they can always hear quite well when, when a predator is coming, but they can also hear their friends. So if they get separated from their friends, I have read that they can hear another horse whinny up to a mile away. Wow. Yeah. And so I know the one horse I used to have, the place that she was boarded at, uh, the people said to me one day, oh, I always know when you're coming. Hmm. And I'm, I kind of looked at them like, oh, really? And they said, yeah, she must hear your car when you turn the corner. That was half a mile away. Huh. So she not only could hear something half a mile away, but she also could recognize the sound of my car as opposed to other cars. So um, This must have been when you're driving the Mustang. No, the Thunderbird. Oh. Yeah, which is not overly distinctive. No, no. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, so the other way that a horse uses its ears is to basically communicate either with its friends or its enemies or, you know, its people. And sometimes mm-hmm. they could be friends or enemies as well. Yeah. But... Um, those, are, those are called frenemies. Yeah. So basically a horse will have its ears very pointed forward if it's trying to pick up a sound or very interested in something in front of it or far away that it's looking at. And so all its senses will be directed at that thing. Hmm. Um, So eyes, ears, nostrils will flare, all of those things, taking in as many senses as it can. And so if you're on top of the horse's back when that is happening, then the horse isn't listening to you quite often. So that's something to be aware of. When you know the horse is listening to you is when its ears are flicking back and forth because it's paying attention to where it's going, then it's listening to you, and then it's looking at this and kind of like uh, the little blinker thing that you have on the mirror of your car, right? It's okay. kind of, it's, it's a sensor just to tell you, oh, there's something beside you, and now there's not something beside you. So yeah, similar. It just kind of knows what it's, what's going on in its environment. Um, 
And then horses will indicate that they're unhappy if they pin their ears right flat on their... This is what I'm used to. This is how horses approach me. (laughs) They don't. You went and saw Archie today, and I'm pretty sure he wasn't doing that. No, he was good. (laughs) Except that uh, someone who shall remain nameless forgot to close the uh, stall door when he went outside uh, to see the horses. (laughs) And then the horse might have gone into the stall (laughs) and noticed that the door was open and then decided you know what i should be out in the aisle way uh, i don't need to be in this stall and then i saw this horse go walking past <laughs> the, the and, and then you realized oh no not only is the uh door to the aisle way open the door to the road is open oh yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so then i came in and i i i grabbed him by his horse blanket just kind of gently i wasn't like tugging on it because i didn't want to get him was split, that ben split. or archie this is archie okay and uh but archie's very willful <laughs> you know and he's a big horse like if it was harris who's just a pony i could like out muscle him uh-huh. and pretty much you know kind of steer him not literally out muscle him because mm-hmm. obviously if he realized it he could just knock me over like yeah a bowling yeah he's a miniature bulldozer but you can usually kind of uh fool him into thinking that mm-hmm. you're stronger mm-hmm. archie does not fall for that kind of nonsense he just knows he could lift you up in the air and carry you around <laughs> with him so i had this horse blanket and I was, I kind of had his uh, nose, my hand around kind of under his, okay, yeah. and holding him like that. And I was sort of trying to coax him back into the, uh, into the, uh, the, into the stall. But he wasn't having that. He's like, well, you know, there's there's hay nearby. I think so. Maybe I don't want to go into the stall. And so then we had to get a bridle, not a bridle, but a halter, a halter, and kind of uh, just well, leech ink really, and just use a leech ink mm-hmm. over top. And I just kind of made like a little nose band with it and right. kind of held it tight and mm-hmm. gently led him into the stall and then he was fine after that yeah yeah he's a character yeah. <laughs> but he was good though he didn't spaz out no too much, you no know. he doesn't spaz out no he was good he's a good boy just likes to go where he likes to go but anyway yeah lesson learned i don't know why i just keep learning lessons this this last month <laughs> so many lessons i've learned I, i'm tired of learning lessons <laughs> yeah Anyway. Anyway, so back to the ears. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought of like one more thing, which is um, ears can be an indicator of temperament as well, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the horse that's lop-eared, which is not very common. Okay. But yeah, lop-eared horse is like a lop-eared rabbit, for instance, sure. um, or dog. Yeah. And I know there was that study that was done with uh, fox where they were doing selective breeding of fox based on their temperament. I think it was a study that was done in Russia. And of foxes? Fox, yeah. F-O-X. Okay. Foxes. I've but, never heard them des- described as in a singular oh, way yeah. like that. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, what ended up happening with this? I think they had, I can't remember, it was like close to 20 generations, maybe even 30 generations over the span of this study. Mm-hmm. And what they were doing was selectively breeding the fox with the best temperament to the fox with the best temperament and trying to produce fox with the best temperament. And what ended up happening was that the um, physical traits of the animal changed mm. over the course of this 20 or 30 year experiment, not year, but it's a generation. generation experiment. Yeah. And one of the most significant changes was a softening of the features, um, like the nose was okay. not so sharp and pointy, yeah. but the most significant one was the development of lop ears. And really? So they just became like dogs anyway? Yeah. They're no yeah. longer foxes. Yeah. And they were still fox, but at the same time, they, they took 
the appearance of of dogs more. <laughs> and so one thing that is anecdotally being noted with horses is that horses that are lop-eared tend to be very docile, very tractable, hmm. very trainable, yeah, yeah, very non-reactive. Do you think, this is kind of going back to the fox thing for a second, do you think that part of that is an unconscious cho- choosing by the breeders who are breeding for familiarity to as well like so they're possibly they're attracted to animals that are more dog-like because Mm -hmm. we trust dogs Mm -hmm. we don't trust foxes foxes aren't really very nice animals they're vermin Vermin. yeah they're vermin and they're killing machines they're Mm kind of like you know martins or whatever if they get into a chicken house they don't just eat a chicken and Mm -hmm. go well i'm full they just kill everything in the house even if even if they can't eat it yeah. yeah 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 no, it, it's possible. It, co- it could have been like obviously a subconscious bias towards that. But I think having read about this study, obviously I didn't read a lot about it, but I've come across it a few mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. And the people that were doing the study, conducting the study, seem to be genuinely surprised at this change. So yeah, as well, I course, said, it could yeah. have been a subconscious yeah. bias that mm-hmm. um, that they did not realize they were putting into this. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought it was interesting. And no, there definitely has been, a, again... Um, I don't know if it's been scientifically proven, but anecdotally, it's been noted with horses, a mm-hmm. similar yeah. tendency. So if they have floppy ears, mm-hmm. they're a, a kind horse. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, that was very, that was very good, dear. Thank, Thank you. you. You know that I, I, you know I like to surprise you with that. So. <laughs> and it's always fun because you always have some good answers. So let's get to the, the heart of this episode, I guess. Okay. Um, so just so people know, I was kind of joking earlier that Lisa's playing the... Uh, the person, the whatever I called it, person with a passing interest in mm-hmm. what was going on. But the thing is, you had eye surgery. Yes, yeah. You're you are now. Uh, they call you one eye. That's right. Uh, Yo ho ho. <laughs> yes. And a bottle of rum. We had to buy you a, a parrot for yeah. your shoulder. Yeah. And uh, we had to put it away. Actually, it was kept making noise during mm-hmm. this recording. Yeah. Kept calling me names. <laughs> but yeah, I just found out today. Actually, I, I had the surgery yesterday. Yeah expected to wake up this morning and see very clearly and still could not. Yeah. Had a follow-up, uh, an appointment, and what I found out is I have um, an ocular bandage on my eye. Yeah. Which you can't see looking at it. No. And they didn't mention yesterday. You can't see. But, uh, yeah, so it's getting taken off on Monday. So mm. until Monday, um, essentially, I will have one eye very blurry and one <laughs> eye normal. So, Which is also blurry. Yes. <laughs> All right, so... So all this is to say that I will be taking over the the reading of the notes for mm-hmm. this for this episode, and uh, so please forgive me for all the mistakes I'm about to make. This is unfamiliar to me, so this is uh, Lisa's notes. I'm merely reading them for you. So. It's a good thing you can read shorthand. So let's start. This is uh, the Lost Generation, as Lisa said earlier. Mm-hmm. The setting of this is uh, well, actually, the time for this it starts with a date, April twenty sixth. 2001. Mm-hmm. Pretty specific. Pretty specific. Yeah. And it has a pretty specific location as well, which is central Kentucky. Mm-hmm. We've been there before with Alidar last, last We've been, season. Yes, yeah. that's right. We were in Kentucky. That's right. Uh, kind of the horse breeding capital of America, I would yeah. say. And actually our very our inaugural episode as well. We were there with the Secretariat baby story. This is our third visit, I guess, to Kentucky. Hmm. Our old Kentucky home. Uh-huh. All right, so what happened? What was the incident? On April 26th at TaylorMade Farm, and uh, so this immediately makes me stop, because I wonder if this farm was owned by the uh, Gulf 
company or if that had anything to do with the golf know. equipment company Taylor made. I've never heard of that. Huh. It's a pretty big golf company. Not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> On April 26th at TaylorMade Farm, a thoroughbred breeding and racing facility in Jessamine County, Kentucky, which is better known today as the home of Triple Crown winner American Pharaoh. When did American Pharaoh win the Triple Crown? Can I remember now? No. A few years ago. Yeah. More than a few years ago, probably six or seven years ago, I would think now. Maybe. During a regu- regularly scheduled pregnancy exam of six mares, using the fairly new ultrasound technology for the purpose of fetal sexing, Dr. Tom Riddle... Tom Riddle? <laughs> and Voldemort. Voldemort has come. This is uh, Dr. Tom Riddle. This is, of course, before Harry Potter, so he had to change his name later on. I don't know. I don't... Was it before Harry Potter? 2001? I think it's before Chamber of Secrets, which is okay. where, uh, I don't know, I can't remember now. Okay, yeah, you're right. Dr. Tom Riddle at the world-renowned Rood and Riddle Equine Hospital had some sad news to impart to the farm manager. The fetus he was examining had no heartbeat. However, when he moved on to the mare's stablemate for her ultrasound, his sadness changed to shock when he discovered that the second mare's fetus also had no heartbeat. To put things in perspective, Riddle typically preg-checked 400 mares a year, and on average, about five pregnancies a year would not be viable. Here, in one day, he had found two non-viable fetuses in the same barn. So obviously pretty unusual. Mm-hmm. Within 24 hours, reports started coming in from other nearby farms that were also discovering similar fetal losses, which included the discovery of spontaneously aborted fetuses. As previously mentioned, while the normal number of aborted fetuses sent to the state lab each spring typically averaged four or five for the season, the lab was reporting 60 fetuses a day. Almost overnight, statistics appeared to be heading into the neighborhood of a 25 to 75 percent loss of the next year's full crop. At the world-renowned Claiborne Farm alone, of 40 mares checked over a two-deer period between May 5th and May 6th. That's a two-day. I don't know if I said two deer. <laughs> Two-day period between May 5th and May 6th, 25% had lost their pregnancy. It was felt that many breeders who were still relying on palpitation checks rather than ultrasounds could find that their losses would soon come to light as they were unaware they had lost fetuses, since the more typically performed routine palpitation checks only record the presence rather than the viability of a fetus. So, uh, just to stop for a second, what are, what are palpitation checks? I've never heard of this. Well, palpitation check would be when the vet puts on a very, very long glove. It goes right up to their shoulder. Yeah. And then they stick their hand into the mirror and they feel around. Yeah. And see if there's actually anything in there. So they're looking for, um, they're kind of feeling the kind of ovary, I guess, and seeing if there's, yeah. or the uterus, they're mm-hmm. seeing if there's anything in there. And so this just happened at a time when technology was changing, because up to this point, that was the only way yeah. you could tell if the mare was in full, if it didn't come in heat again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so now all of a sudden they've got ultrasound mm-hmm. that they can use. And they're not just using it to see if the foal is there, but they're actually using it for the purpose of finding out if it's a girl or a boy. Yeah. And yeah, yeah so they... Uh, byproduct of this is that they can actually see the heartbeat which with a as i said with a a routine um, palpitation check you would just know that it was there but you couldn't actually feel whether the heart was beating or not you would assume it is yeah yeah couldn't um like do horses not move around in the in the well these are like basically 60 months or 60 
what am I? Sixty days, sorry. Sixty days. Yeah, okay. sixty day old fools. So they're okay. tiny. They're maybe the size of a peanut or something like that. So. So people were like poking their hands inside of of a mare, mm-hmm. and then poking a peanut sized. Yes. Yeah. Just seeing if it's that there. Is there something safe. there? That doesn't seem very safe. For, safe for well, a peanut. Well, that's yeah. That's I mean that's old school technology, right? But that's all they had. Yeah. Back then. Yeah. But now with this ultrasound, it's not invasive. You know, there's a lot of sure. advantages. You can tell if it's a girl or boy. Yeah. You can also see if it's got a heartbeat. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, all these vets who had been pulling on. <laughs> arm long arm long gloves yes, must have been so yeah. happy to have the ultrasound yeah. well and putting themselves right in the kick zone you know yeah that's true as well yeah, yeah right behind yeah it's yeah. very dangerous mm-hmm. yes it is that is very dangerous very dangerous um as the week progressed it became apparent that not only were an extraordinarily high number of aborted fetuses being reported in central kentucky's woodford and bourbon counties bourbon bourbon kentucky bourbon oh, i didn't realize it was named so which came first bourbon the, the county, or the egg. <laughs> yeah, was it Bourbon County, or is it called Bourbon County because they make bourbon there, or is it called Bourbon because it came from Bourbon County? I would guess that it would be called Bourbon because it came from Bourbon County. Hmm. Interesting. Additionally, all around Central Kentucky, a higher number of foals were starting to be delivered stillborn. In a very short time, it was apparent that the numbers were staggering. Between April twenty eighth and May tenth, three hundred and seventy one aborted or stillborn foals were brought into the state lab for examination. It was projected at that time, if the current trend continued, Kentucky's breeding industry could suffer a loss in the neighborhood of 30% of the foals that would have normally been born the following year. Since stallion owners can only collect money for their breeding fees when the foal stands and nurses, it was predicted that financial losses could be anywhere between $150 million to a quarter of a billion dollars. The ripple effect was predicted to affect trainers, boarding farms, feed producers, bloodstock agents, insurance agents, and racetracks over the next few years. Experts were unsure if these losses were a one-time event or if they would continue. So I'm going to guess from where we are so far that I'm thinking like environmental, like to me it would be something like selenium in the soil or something like that mm-hmm. is causing problems. Yeah. Like some kind of like something that's in too much. Mm-hmm. And also, my prediction also is that the situation is going to provoke interest only up to the point that there is a solution found. And that doesn't mean that there'll be a cure, mm-hmm. but that they will find a solution and that will be good enough. Okay. And they'll stop there. Yeah. Because um, I feel like that is the nature of 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 horse vet- veterinary practice. Mm-hmm. That well, yeah. Basically, think, they discover something yeah. that works. They don't necessarily know why it works. But the mechanism seems to have an effect, so it becomes like best practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just find the, find an answer. Yeah, and yeah, I think you're right, and I think any uh, animal that's used for food, whether it be chicken or beef or pork or whatever, there's going to be way more money invested in research into keeping those animals alive than there is like pleasure horses etc i think Mm -hmm. nowadays maybe there's a little bit more money being put into research for horses but comparatively it's still minor yeah um like i think we've talked before about our pony harris who is a connemara and connemaras in the last probably only 20 years have been found to carry a gene for something called hoof wall separation syndrome yeah and that was a research project that was basically funded by owners and breeders. And 
yeah, it was not funded by universities. I think yeah. the university contributed maybe, but um, yeah, it was it was primarily funded by owners and breeders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the university can contribute time, mm-hmm. but it can't contribute money. It can't yeah. contribute, and they're, they're not going to and they're not going to incite this. They're not going to be the people who start the no the and research, I'm, and the know. government's not going to care about they're something right. like that. No. What do they care? So yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, government government is not proactive though government is reactive mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. and and unfortunately so i think so is veterinary care as well is also mm-hmm. reactive it's not proactive i mean there are you know i think for dogs and cats or for so animals that are like pets, companion companion animals mm-hmm. or like i say food animals there is a drive for you know some measure some some uh, some amount of of you know curative mm-hmm. but i I don't think that exists for for horses. For no, instance. no. I think um, if they can find a solution that uh, comes from medication, then then the drug companies would step in yeah. and take over and sure, do more sure. if they see profit in it for them. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think generally speaking, comparatively, yeah, there's not yeah. a lot spent. Yeah, and I mean, for a drug company, the amount of money you put into research for for medicine is it would be prohibitive to try to create like a some sort of wonder drug for whatever. I mm-hmm. mean there there are drugs for mm-hmm. horses and stuff, you know, there's wor- dewormers and you know, which are also popular for COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For COVID prevention. But, you know, so there's horse dewormers and there's and um, you know, so there's are, there are things that work, but but I feel like, you know, and I you know, for me it's probably as a farrier, you know, seeing like something like laminitis where it seemed like everyone had their own idea of what how to cure laminitis. Mm-hmm. There was no agreed upon standard practice. It was just almost regional or individually, you know, based mm-hmm. ideas of what worked best. Right. And all of those things are fine because they obviously worked some way in practice. Mm-hmm. But the how it worked was not really that well understood at that time. There's been more research done in it, obviously. But at that time when I was studying, there was very little knowledge of the actual like mechanics of mm-hmm. what was happening to cause laminitis. Right. And so all of the cures for it were based in, it worked. Mm-hmm. They weren't based in like why it worked. Yeah. They're based in just, oh, this happened to yeah, work. Yeah, in this case, this worked. Yeah. So then everyone's going to use it because it worked on that horse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This particular yeah. shoe worked, yeah. you know. This backward shoe worked. Yeah. Or this, yeah, frog support pad worked or yeah, this yeah. bar shoe worked or this wedge shoe worked or yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever yeah and, and so it yeah depended on who it was if, mm-hmm. you know if you had if you're a bernie chapman fan then you were into heart bar shoes yeah. and those were the you know the, the be all and end all of, yeah. of but if you were a fan of of uh i can't remember his first name chris Patton, i think chris pollett no this no? is a different guy this okay. was a farrier uh a vet slash farrier from somewhere in the south and on the wet east coast and he was like yeah he, he was like a uh, pad guy so he had like a elevated pad that kept the horse's foot at an angle mm-hmm. which isn't bad mm-hmm. because i mean that's also part of the problem with with laminitis right is talking about hoof wall separation is you mm-hmm. end up in a situation where there's a huge failure of the blood supply to the hoof and yeah. it starts to cause collapse and so by making it into a more upright uh unit it helped to relieve the the stress on the on the, the hoof mm-hmm. So these were like good in theory, but I don't think they really understood why they were doing it. It just worked. Mm-hmm. You know, they were working within their understanding of how of the mechanics of laminitis. Yeah. And and it feels like oh, that's the case with a lot of horse practice anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm predicting those. Okay. Those th- two yep. things. Well, we'll have to carry on and find out. All right. 
Let me continue reading instead of blabbing. Alright, what was found? Two syndromes appeared to be at play at the same time. One, red bag, which is premature placenta separation. Here, the placenta comes out before the foal, which causes the foal to suffocate. Red bag foals who survive the birthing process typically have, typically only have a 50% chance of living beyond a week. Red bag is typically associated with endophyte exposure. So, okay, two things here. One, uh, what is what is an endophyte? Endophyte. Okay, uh, it's it's uh, some kind of a growth that happens on certain plants, like for instance, red fescue. Okay. And I believe it has to happen in certain climatic conditions as well, because we have red fescue up here, and it hasn't been that big of an issue. Yeah. But certainly in the south, where they've got yeah different climate, it has been quite a big problem. But now you can buy endophyte-free fescue seeds. I see. Yeah. Okay. And the second thing is, red bag is, is the grossest name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. So it's, it's too evocative it is of what too, it is. Yeah. And I think um, that's something that humans can get as well. I think it's the same as placenta previa, okay. which actually was something I was supposed to have had as okay. well. Yeah. But yeah. Hmm. I thought that was a Toyota. <laughs> uh, two, during the 60-day pregnancy checks of mares that had been c- covered that year, ultrasounds showed that mares that had previously been confirmed in foal had either lost their fetuses or were in the process of losing their pregnancy. Geographically, the syndrome affected all central Kentucky County. Reports also started to come in that isolated incidences were occurring to a lesser extent in a couple of states north of Kentucky, but the rest of the country appeared to be unaffected. So, the investigation from the beginning. In late April, Dr. Riddle's first step upon finding Harry Potter, oh wait, sorry, upon finding the unexpectedly high rate of fetus deaths was not confined to one barn. Uh, So his first step was to call Neil Williams, a pathologist at the University of Kentucky's Livestock Disease Diagnostic Center, and Dr. Roberta Dwyer, a researcher at the University of Kentucky's Maxwell T. Gluck Equine Research Center. And uh, we all have to ask at this point, who was Maxwell T. Gluck to get his name on a center for livestock or equine research. Don't know. At the time, Dr. Riddle first contacted them. Neither researcher had heard of a similar problem in Kentucky yet, nor had they heard of similar problems elsewhere. But Williams immediately offered to examine any genetic material collected, and Dwyer said she would come to visit TaylorMade Farm, what could then be considered ground zero the next day. So this, in- this indicates, this part of the story indicates to us the problem with communication at this time. So we have this thing that's happening, obviously a big mm-hmm. thing that's happening in Kentucky, and two, the, you know, two uh, agencies that should be major players. Be major players in this have no idea it's happening. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, in the first what twenty-four to forty-eight hours, okay. though. So it's oh, very, okay. very early days. But yes, I think um, nowadays, in the time of computer, email, uh, social media. It would immediately be out there, mm, mm. but um, yeah, things certainly moved slower. And this is it's only like 21 years ago, but yeah. even so, yeah, 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 news traveled much slower. Dr. Dwyer came to the farm and brought epidemiologist Dr. David Powell. By this time, news was uh, trickling in from even more farms in Kentucky that also were experiencing issues. 
Dr. Powell then held many meetings with breeders, vets, and pasture management specialists to look for commonalities between cases. State and federal agencies were also consulted. By May 2nd, Dr. Len Harrison, director of the Livestock Diagnostic Center in Lexington, was also becoming very concerned at the abnormally high number of stillborn full-term foals that had started arriving at his state-run lab. The parking lot, now daily, had a long line of people delivering dead foal carcasses. Staff at the lab were overwhelmed by the numbers and the lineups that stretched well into the evening. As the specimens stacked up, the center's incinerator became overloaded, and a disposal company had to be contracted to haul away the surplus carcasses. On May 5th, the day Monarchos won the Kentucky Derby, not far away over at Churchill Downs, 73 dead foals were delivered to the lab, and any one of those foals could have been the next Monarchos. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's, uh, you know... There could have been farms that weren't even bringing their foals in as well. Yeah, They're yeah. just like, oh, well, too bad, so sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to point out here that um, the Livestock Diagnostic Center and uh, Kentucky's Livestock Disease Diagnostic Center are not necessarily related to horses, but just to farm animals in general. Mm-hmm. It's only the hilariously named Maxwell T. Gluck Equine Research Center that would have actually been horse-centered in, in mm-hmm. their research. Because it does sound like all departments were like coming to, to the aid of horses here, but really it's just happenstance and the fact that people were bringing their horses to them. Conversely, in Maryland, another area that produces a high number of foals every year, no trace of foal loss was observed. But then on May 7th, Powell received unconfirmed reports of similar outbreaks in two states north of Kentucky. The states were later identified as Ohio, specifically the Ohio River Valley area. No, just one second. I cannot believe that Ohio is uh, connected to Kentucky. Yeah, they're across the Cincinnati River from each other. That doesn't make any sense. Because Ohio is like a, you know, like a industrial wasteland with a burning river in it. And, you know, it's just like a big giant pit of like factories and steel mills. In Kentucky, it's bluegrass country. It's all rolling hills full of horses everywhere. Mm-hmm. I can't. I just can't picture the two together. Like to me, Ohio is like, like I don't know. It's like a midwestern state, but I guess it isn't. It's weird. It's weird. Mm-hmm. It does make it does make sense now. Like why was it John Brown that you know his raiders or whatever were operating in Ohio during the Civil War? I can never figure out why they would be there. But now <laughs> I just always think of it as I don't know farther away from that area. Now it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I guess I should have looked at a map. <laughs> Uh, specifically the Ohio River Valley area, which ultimately experienced a loss of 300 foals or fetuses, a rate of 25%, with numbers exceeding 60% on some farms, as well as West Virginia and Tennessee. Additionally, the southwestern portion of British Columbia in Canada also reported experiencing the syndrome. Mm-hmm. Wow. Although, in any of the research I did, uh, I didn't find any... Direct? Direct... A uh, word about it happening in BC. Okay. Okay. Like they, they never said it happened here, but I know it happened here because we had it happen to us. Yeah. Yeah. With with uh, two horses actually. Yeah. So, um, and I remember that particular year specifically because uh, a few other bad things happened in our, you know, nine eleven for one thing happened that year. My mom yeah. died that year. Yeah. And then there was something else really bad that happened. But also Phoenix's fool died that year. Mm. And um, yeah, and it was kind of a, huh, well, that was too bad. But 
she had been sent to a big breeding farm where they specialized in foaling and they had had an abnormally high number. And so we were hearing while we were there that Kentucky was also having a similar thing. So although in none of the research I did, did it ever say anything about BC? I know that there was, yeah, this correlation and it wasn't just this one big farm that we had the horses at but they mentioned a few other larger breeding farms as well in the area here Hmm. researchers first considered infectious diseases equine herpes virus ehv1 or hv4 being the most likely culprits However, testing and anecdotal evidence determined that infectious disease was not was not the culprit. The geographic element conclusively helped Powell to rule out the infectious disease hypothesis, and geography also ruled out pollution as being a source of the problem. Well, I don't know. Ohio did have a burning river in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A burning river. So I think, you know, that does sound like pollution. Yeah, but most of these things happen in Kentucky. With infectious disease and pollutants off the table... Investigators turned to an environmental cause, as the issue appeared to have struck suddenly with no warning, which is typical of environmental causation. Farms had grass, soil, and water tested. Scientists drew blood from affected mares, and scientists tested fecal and colostrum samples. What's colostrum, dear? Uh, Colostrum is one of the first things when a foal first stands in nurses. Um, Milk comes out, but with the milk there is something called colostrum, which is sort of like a... Super juice. I don't know. Okay. I can't think. Can't think of any other term for it. But yeah. it provides the foal with um, its immunity, for okay. instance. Yeah. So, if for some reason a foal isn't able to, you know, get that colostrum, maybe the mare dies, or maybe the mare isn't producing milk or something, um, then you have to source it elsewhere. So usually through the veterinarian. Otherwise, the the foal can be susceptible to various things and not do well. Equine nutritionists investigated the feedstuffs given to the broodmares. Both water and purchased grains were soon eliminated as sources of the outbreak, as there was a lack of consistent factors linking these consumables from barn to barn. Pastures were the next to be scrutinized. Starting on May 2nd, pasture and forage forage experts walked through farms taking soil samples, clipping grass samples, and then analyzing them. Endophytes... Oh, endophytes again. Mm Mm-hmm. Endophytes from red fescue were considered a possibility, but in collaboration with breeze and pasture management specialists, it was determined that few of the farms involved had any red fescue in their fields. However, researchers went on to state that it did not rule out endophytes completely, as the possibility remained that endophytes could be present in other grasses. So they developed a number of theories, mm-hmm. and uh, here are some of them. One, a contagious disease such as EHV1, EHV4, EVA, Salmonella, or Leptospirosis. I scoff at that. <laughs> Two, unusual weather conditions. Kentucky that year had a hot spell in March, followed by a freeze-up as they transitioned from spring to summer, which was then followed by a drought. The weather pattern provided great opportunity for fungus growth. It was noted that 1980 had also seen weather patterns and a higher than usual number of abortions were experienced uh, on Kentucky horse farms that year. However, no cause for the abortions was ever determined. That goes back to what we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. Mycotoxins, which are sometimes produced by molds, were initially thought to be the most likely culprit, especially when higher than usual amounts of the mycotoxin 
They are Lenone. They are they are Lenone. <laughs> it's named by an Italian man. Yeah. Was apparent in higher than normal levels and testing conducted in mid-May. I always love to go to an Italian restaurant and get a nice big bowl of Zearleone. <laughs> External fungi on the seed heads of bluegrass that could have appeared after the freeze-up. This is theory four, by the way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not numbering them. I should mm-hmm. have to do that. So it's number four. Theory number four. Theory number five. Cyanide produced by white clover that had been stressed by the normal weathering patterns. Hmm. Six. Phytoestrogens which are estrogens that are naturally occurring in legume. It was felt that the abnormal weather patterns could have disrupted them. That was number six. Number seven, endophytes and grasses. They're there again, endophytes and grasses. Red fescue, a common grass, can harbor an endophyte that causes abortion in pregnant mares. Number eight, a problem with a particular food or brand of horsefeed grain. That is what's called a vague theory. Nine, certain stallions or stallion lines could be implicated since the issues were initially identified as primarily con- concentrating on the thoroughbred breed. But I would point out that that would be the most common horse bred in mm-hmm. Kentucky. Yeah. 10. Bagworms. Caseworms, psychidae, or eastern tent caterpillar infection. The eastern ca- tent caterpillar was rampant in central Kentucky in 2001. And also there are things called bagworms, mm-hmm. which makes me unhappy. 11. An immune-mediated disease. 12, uh, Eastern Tent Caterpillars and Mold Hybrid Theory. 13, an infectious process that was not disease-related. Hmm, there you go. An infectious process. Another vague one. How the issue progressed. Researchers acknowledged that a similar syndrome had occurred in Kentucky in 1980 and 1981, with estimated losses of 256 foals in 1980 and 162 in 1981. However, researchers were also aware those numbers could potentially be much higher in those years due to ultrasound not being in use and to the general overall, uh, sorry, less common use of aware and awareness of reproductive technology. Researchers observed that the majority of affected mares lacked any clinical signs and appeared normal, healthy, and happy. The mares affected were not those classified as having high-risk pregnancy. Some bar owners, bar, some barn owners noticed the tendency for some of the mares to fold standing up, which is unusual. Some mares fold early, while most fold on time, but others fold late. Most mares had developed an udder, or bagged up, but some were agalactic, which means they didn't develop an, an udder or produce any milk prior to foaling. So I guess that's an indicator that the the mare is reaching end of term. Right, yeah. So usually the gestation period for a mare is 11 months. Okay. And as that time starts to approach, then you you see, uh, you look for certain signs of, you know, how imminent the foal is. And often it'll shift, the foal will shift. So you said, does the baby move around? And same with a pregnant woman, right? They say the foal drops. So the foal will shift or move around. Um but the biggest thing is typically is the mare bagging up or getting a big udder. And then they'll get actually like wax on their teats to stop the milk spraying out. But mm. basically it's just, you know, the mare getting ready for this baby to come any yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, so hmm. Some mares exhibited vaginal discharge or had vaginal tissues protruding while the foal was in either the vaginal canal or the uterus. Thank you for that image. <laughs> Other abnormalities that were noted in some mares were dystocia, 
or a slow labor caused by slow dilation, or a grossly heavy, thickened, and edematous, edematous, edematous? Edem, edem, I don't know what it is. It's Probably a word. Edema. Edema? Edematous, I would think. Ed, edema is inflammation. Edematous. Placenta, which was seen in many. What is it? Sorry, edema. Edema is inflammation. Oh, okay. Which was seen in many, if not most cases. Umbilical cords were observed to be hemorrhaged, and later on, it would be shown that all contain abnormal infectious agents. Microbiological, microbiological. Why is it a weird sometimes when you like you read a word? It's like pahotograph. That's not quite that extreme. That's not. I don't want to put myself in that in that boat. But it's just funny because you put you add micro to it, yeah. and suddenly it seems like you just start you put the the uh, accent on the wrong syllable because yeah, right. the micro kind of throws you off. Mm-hmm. We need like uh, Latin or not Latin, but Spanish, where they put the accent over uh, the part of the word where if it has if it's an oh, accented if it's unusually, the part that's, okay. if it's accented unusually, like there's a set way to pronounce. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, usually they say they out they always accent the second syllable, but sometimes they don't, so they'll put an accent to indicate that that's. A key. But anyway. Microbiological assays routinely found evidence of strep or actinocillus, actinocillus, <laughs> or other organisms, both in the umbilical, umbilical in the umbilical cord. I can actually say that. I don't know what happened there. The umbilical cord, and sometimes in the fetuses themselves. I feel like I've been made to read some Old Testament chapter that's full <laughs> of confusing town names, and you just have to wing it. <laughs> A small number of mares, less than 5%, exhibited some mild colic symptoms with abdominal straining or trembling. The foals that were stillborn were not breathing upon delivery in spite of appearing healthy and having what appeared to be a typically uncomplicated delivery. Uh, Just to jump back up again, because I was just thinking of colic here. Mm -hmm. So a small number of mares, less than 5%, showed symptoms of colic Mm -hmm. or symptoms of something that was like colic. Well, I would say symptom of something that is like colic, because colic in itself is a very general term. So yeah, yeah. it's just a general term for pain in the abdominal area. Mm-hmm. But there's col- different colics that can affect the stomach, that can affect the small intestine, that can affect the large intestine. Um, colics that, you know, like a gas colic, as soon as the horse farts, then it's fine and it can walk away. And then other types of colic... You have to have a surgical resolution to them. So, yeah, colic is just very, very vague and very general term in itself. Mm-hmm. So I think they were just saying the horse was exhibiting signs of abdominal pain. Yeah. Okay. The foals that were stillborn were not breathing upon delivery, in spite of appearing healthy and having what appeared to be a typically uncomplicated delivery. Foals that were not stillborn were described as listless and experienced a higher number of issues, such as low white blood count, and of course, white blood cells are the cells mm-hmm. that fight infection. Presented with system-wide infections, respiratory issues, conjunctivitis, which is a way of saying inflamed eyes, fluid buildup around the heart, and or were dehydrated. They often did not survive beyond a week. For the mares that lost their fetuses at around 60 days, it was reported that they felt normal on rectal palpitation. Re- sorry, on rectal palpation. Is that right? Palpation? Palpitation. Oh, sorry. It was reported they felt normal on rectal palpitation, but some of them exhibited vaginal discharge or fever, and others and others had abnormal elontoic fluid. What's elontoic fluid? Elanto- um, that base, elon- I think that's like um, the 
fluid that's in the... The placenta? Placenta, yeah. Okay. For the mares that lost their fetuses at around 60 days, it was reported that they felt normal on rectal palpitation, but some of them exhibited vaginal discharge or fever, and others had abnormal allantoic fluid, which appeared cloudy, with echogenic material around the fetus. I think it is palpate, not palpitation. Okay. Yeah, palpation. You corrected me, and you shouldn't have. Well, you asked, and then I corrected you the wrong way. <laughs> That's right. I should have asked. Altogether, between April 28th and May 7th, 318 dead fetuses and foals were brought into the University of Kentucky's Disease Diagnostic Center. This was a 700% increase from the same time at the previous year. On May 8th alone, an additional 100 stillborn foals were brought in. It soon became apparent that the affected horses were of many different breeds, although the majority were thoroughbreds. Kentucky accounts for a full one-third of the country's thoroughbreds. Another hard-hit farm was Brittany Farm, a large standard-bred racing and breeding facility. Horses were the only type of livestock affected by this issue. Between mid-May and June 1st, vets then started to notice an unusually high number of horses of all ages, sucklings, yearlings, mares, and stallions, developing pericardial effusions, which is excess fluid in the area between the heart and the pericardium, the sac around the heart. While not typically fatal, it does contribute negatively to the heart's ability to work optimally. It was thought that the pericarditis might be the result of the immune-suppressant effects or prolonged exposure to mycotoxin. Another issue that arose in younger horses at the time was panophthalmo... Oh, boy. <laughs> panopheth... Oh, brother. Let me just say panophthalmitis. 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 Or inflammation of all the tissues of the eye. Oh, you could just say that. Yeah, it's hard. Just pan. Yeah. Ophthalmitis. Panophthalmitis. Okay. Now you tell me. A condition not normally observed in this geographic area. Yearlings prepping for the fall yearling sales were also showing significant weight loss. The development of the panophthalmitis in particular was the key to having vets look at all these abnormal issues as being related. So why would that be? Because it wasn't normal? It was an unusual presentation in horses, the panophthalmitis? So yeah, I think because it wasn't uh, something that was known geographically in that area. Yeah. So it is known, but it was an abnormality geographically. Yeah. yeah. One major side effect of this outbreak was that farm workers and those employed in local vet hospitals were devastated by the losses and fatigued by the increased workloads. Local vet hospitals had to build improvised stalls to house all the sick horses that poured in. Vets and vet nurses logged much overtime, experienced tremendous stress, and ultimately experienced few cases that reached positive resolution. This would be like during COVID. Mm-hmm. One vet hospital employee talked of how, in a usual week, one might experience one death every three to four days. But on the day she was interviewed in the midst of the outbreak, she observed that one died when I came to, into work, another one died at lunch, and another died when I was getting ready to leave. That's a bad day. Yes, that's part of that you don't really think about, but the the how wearying it would be to have horses and, or anyone dying around you and mm-hmm. and not be able to do very much about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the feeling of futility and helplessness. Mm-hmm. Would be very yeah, and I think horrible. one of the things that attracts people to those sort of jobs, like being a vet assistant or being a veterinarian, is that you love animals and you want to help animals. And yeah, if you're in a situation where they're just dropping and there's literally nothing you can do, yeah, it would be very devastating. Yeah. Because fetuses can be insured from 42 days after breeding, insurance agents became not only involved, but also highly concerned about their bottom lines. 
One agent stated that on May 8th, the panic is just starting. So what was done about this? The Maryland Department of Agriculture considered putting an embargo on all horses coming into Maryland from Kentucky until the cause of the issue was determined. Ultimately, this was not carried out. The hilariously named Maxwell T. Gluck Equine Research Center at the University of Kentucky sent a memo to all Kentucky horse vets on Sunday, May 6, to alert them of the issue. All area horse farms were then sent surveys. University of Kentucky veterinary, veterinary researchers and others held a news briefing on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 8th. On Thursday, May 10th at 5 p.m., a joint meeting was held at the Keeneland Sales Pavilion for 1,000 members of the Kentucky Thoroughbred Farm Managers Club and the Kentucky Association of Equine Practitioners. Several thousand people also joined this session online. Until the cause could be determined, all pregnancies were then considered high risk. Vets advised owners to undertake ultrasound exams for all pregnant mares between 60 to 65 days of gestation. Vets administered medications such as Domperidone, Domperignon, Domperignon, Domperidone, a medication used to treat stomach pain and that helps increase milk supplies, as well as probiotics to counteract some of the symptoms associated with foaling problems. It was recommended that farm owners keep pastures mowed to eliminate seed heads, a step usually avoided during a drought. Some farms went one step farther and took all their horses off pasture completely and then supplemented the horses' diets with additional hay and grain. Pyrethroid insecticide containing permethrin was recommended to be sprayed around fence lines and micro-injections of insecticides at the base of trees were also carried out. Vets recommended all horses in the area be given feeds with a mycotoxin binder additive and to treat all horses as though they had had been exposed to mycotoxins. For any mare that aborted, it was recommended that any fetal tissue that could be found be collected, and a serum sample be taken from the mare so that testing could be undertaken. Vets also asked that one fecal sample and one cup of any grain being fed to the mare also be delivered to the lab. Uh, what would a serum sample be? What, would, what, what does that mean? Serums probably um, like when they have blood and you take like the red blood cells out and the white blood cells out. Oh, okay. And okay. Um, by May 8th, the situation was considered to have such seriously negative economic impacts that Kentucky's congressional delegations asked the USDA, that is the U.S. Department of, Department of Agriculture, for financial relief. The Progress and Outcome of the Investigation Three weeks of feverish investigations into this biological puzzle finally helped determine what was believed to be the cause of both the red bag foaling and the preterm abortions, which by this time had been given a definitive name, Mare Reproductive Loss Syndrome, or MRLS. It had been noted back on May 2nd that when epidemiologist Dr. David Powell had done his farm visitations, that caterpillars, quote, were literally carpeting the fields, unquote. At that time, however, there was some pushback as many researchers recalled a heavily, heavy infestation the previous year without any corresponding increase in death. This had moved other theories to the forefront. To further back up their viewpoint, the caterpillars had been tested on May 4th and showed nothing of concern in their systems. Meanwhile, equine nutrition consultant and research team member Steve Jackson had had three early pasture samples test positive for mycotoxin. 
Researchers then sent samples of grasses collected after May 5th to labs and received back negative results for the major mycotoxins, including Zearlinone, that fabulous Italian treat. May 5th, additionally, ergot alkaloids and dophytic fungi were tested for and eliminated. No mycotoxins were detected anywhere in other tests. In fact, over 400 different tests were run for mycotoxins, gaining Steve the nickname Myco Jackson as a result of what were considered early false positives, as well as his love of the moonwalk. Elsewhere, a University of Kentucky agronomist had spent the preceding weeks gathering pasture samples, but was having difficulty getting the samples tested. By the time he found a lab to do the testing, he had come to the independent conclusion that his initial theory of mycotoxin could not be correct, as they had never presented an issue in the area in the previous 100 years. The investigation about mycotoxin was reported at a Keeneland meeting held on May 10th. Dr. Lynn Harrison did research at the University of Kentucky's W.T. Young Library, named for the owner of the most expensive stallion in the world. And dear, what is the most expensive stallion in the world? Uh, Stormcat, at that time. Stormcat was the most expensive stallion at that time? Mm-hmm. So who would be the most expensive stallion now? I don't know. You don't know, but you, it's, he has been overtaken in terms of I believe value. so, yeah. I think he's like number four, I read. No, oh, but still, his name is mm-hmm. Stormcat. That's a great name. Uh, so uh, Harrison was researching at this uh, library and discovered a 303-page book entitled The Tent Caterpillars that had been written in 1995 by Terence Fitzgerald, a New York-based entomologist who had spent his life studying tent caterpillars. Wow, what a life. Mm-hmm. Following a meeting at the Kentucky Horse Park on May 15th, Harrison once again raised the question of caterpillars as being a contributing factor and showed Henning the book he had found. The book explained how the eastern tent caterpillar favored wild black cherry trees, which produce cyanide in their fruit, and when the leaves are bruised or damaged, released uh, cyanogenic compounds. The caterpillars, which are immune to these compounds, would ingest the leaves. Starting at at 3 a.m. on May 16th, teams were sent to multiple farms in the areas, and the reports all came back positive for wild black cherry trees. At a meeting on May 17th, Henning once again proposed the theory of tent caterpillars. His ideas were not well received. The following day, Henning and agronomist Mike Collins visited a farm that had had a high rate of affected horses. They combed over one field that had housed 13 mares that aborted. It, if the center, um, oh, sorry, the center of this huge field, sorry, I'll say it again. The center of the field was a huge grove of mature wild cherry trees. In the field next to it, which had housed 30 mares, none of, hum, none of whom had aborted, there were no cherry trees. Henning felt he had cracked the case. Young cherry trees hold the most prunicin, the compound that breaks down into cyanide. The extreme weather patterns the area had experienced that spring, specifically the frost followed by the drought, had stressed the leaves, causing more cyanide than normal to be released. Meanwhile, the warm spell experienced earlier that spring had given a boost to the caterpillar population, creating a situation that saw an overpopulation that resulted in the insects defoliating the trees and then moving on earlier than normal. Meanwhile, full deaths were slowing down. This fit with Henning's theory as the caterpillars had finished their cycle and disappeared. On May 19th, Henning met with Gluck toxicologist Tobin and Dr. Harrison to further discuss the caterpillar theory. The next day they set up a conference call between Tobin, Gluck epidemiologist Powell, 
and the book's author, Terry Fitzgerald, who was at that time teaching at the State University of New York at Cortland. Fitzgerald, who, who knew nothing about horses and was unaware of the full dust, soon picked up on the urgency of the situation. He explained how, after eating, a caterpillar digests his food within six hours. Caterpillars rapidly detoxify the cherry leaves. He explained that by the time food reached the mid-gut levels, cyanide would be virtually undetectable, and that anything remaining is passed out of the body. This helped explain why groups of previously tested caterpillars had turned up negative for cyanide as they had already completed digestion. Researchers found breeding records that showed the caterpillars were on the move from April, April 16th to the 23rd. What cyanide does is it inhibits the body's ability to take up and use oxygen. Harrison's lab had discovered that 78% of the foals had bacteria that thrive in low oxygen environments. The umbilical cords, which provide all the oxygen the foals required, were infected in all cases. Many of the foals had fluid in their lungs on, at birth, indicating that they were gasping for oxygen while in utero, literally drowning in their mother's uteruses. Observations showed that all affected farms had wild black cherry trees. Wilted black cherry leaves are known toxins to sheep and cows, as the wilting process significantly increases the content and availability of cyanide. Likewise, the spring had seen a significant eastern tent caterpillar, Melacosoma americanum, infestation. Wild black cherry trees are the tent caterpillar's favorite, as the tent caterpillars, uh, which are immune to cyanide, consume the leaves and use cyanides as a defense mechanism. Further investigation noted that all affected farms had had significant eastern tent caterpillar infestation, and when the caterpillars were tested, many showed high levels of cyanide in their systems. The unusual weather pattern, starting with the hot spell in March, then the freeze, then the drought, had caused, caused the leaves of the wild black cherry trees to produce, a, to produce more cyanide than was typical. Toxicologist Thomas Tobin of the Gluck Equine Research Center noted that extreme... Toxicologist Thomas Tobin of the Gluck Equine Research Center noted that the extreme weather, extreme weather, coupled with the high number of caterpillars, resulted in a situation where the caterpillars completely defoliated the trees and in the process consumed excessive levels of cyanide. It was theorized that the caterpillars and their feces then dropped onto pastures and into water tanks and could have been inadvertently consumed by the pregnant mares. While the mares tested fine for cyanide, the stillborn foals were found to have high levels of cyanide in their systems. Cyanide is a toxin that blocks oxygen delivery, which helped to explain the respiratory symptoms exhibited by the foals in particular. By May 2nd, most of the other variables and theories had been ruled out, except for the caterpillar theory. It was stated that the caterpillars just kept crawling back into the equation. Where's the my jokes? By this time, the death toll was up to 528 stillborn foals. Twelve alone had been delivered dead on May 21st. With all the other variables ruled out, although caterpillars appeared to be the culprit, it was still unclear how or why this was happening. To complicate things, the caterpillar's normal cycle had finished, and there were none available any longer to test. Researchers held an information meeting at Keeneland on May 24th as farm managers and vets were expressing frustration with the lack of information. Scott Smith, dean of the University of Kentucky College of Agriculture, announced the latest hypothesis that wild black cherry trees were likely the source of the compounds being found in horses' systems, with eastern tent caterpillars being either directly or indirectly involved in the delivery. At that time, the researchers asked for samples of any hay that would have been cut during the time of the infection, as well as any samples of fluids taken from the mares at that time for further investigation. Additionally, 
Dr. Doug Byers of the Hagyard Davidson McGee Vet Clinic and Dr. Bill Barnard of the of Rood and Riddle Equine Hospital met privately with Dr. Peter Timoney, the director of the Gluck Center. The outcome of that meeting was that all area vets would be faxed a daily briefing and all vets would, in turn, fax in any clinical findings that they observed out in the field. Now that the focus was on the caterpillars, teams went out to farms again to look specifically at the caterpillar habitat. It was noted that the caterpillars had been highly mobile at the time and would cross fields and even roads to build their cocoons. Later that week, news came through from a lab at the University of Illinois that they had found cyanide in the, in the foals' hearts. The next step was to experience by feeding caterpillars to mice. Caterpillars were ground up and fed to mice, but the results were inconclusive. Mice said no thanks. Not for that dinner. University of Kentucky entomologist Bruce Webb had never fully embraced the caterpillar cyanide theory. After one meeting, Webb approached Kyle Newman, nutritional microbiologist at Venture Labs, which was connected to the University of Kentucky and told him, I like your mold theory. And you know, frass is a mold growth medium. To which Newman replied, that's great. What's frass? That's what I'm asking too, by the way. Webb went on to explain that frass was the excrement of caterpillars. Following the heavy infestation, the ground, especially the that around trees, had been uh, coated in, in uh, frass. Newman then theorized that the frass could have grown the right molds to produce mycotoxins. Testing then showed that within 24 hours, the team had molds capable of producing the suspected mycotoxins growing in their lab. Looking at the weird weather pattern, the pieces of, puzzle, the, pieces of the puzzle seemed to be finally starting to all come together. Due to the unseasonably warm weather, a higher than usual number of caterpillars were stripping the trees of their leaves, stressing the trees into producing more cyanide. The resultant high caterpillar load and high leaf consumption ended up uh, with overwhelming. The resultant high caterpillar load and high leaf con con uh, consumption ended up with overwhelming levels of frass being dumped on the ground around the trees, which resulted in a huge mold bloom. Looking back at April 16th and 17th, when the freeze-up hit. Although scientists don't know everything about mycotoxins, they have theorized that molds put them under stress. Preliminary work on six farms showed elevated levels of mold antibodies in the mares that had aborted earlier this spring. The telly. In the final calculation, the thoroughbred industry lost 4% of its 2001 full crop, as well as thousands or 30% of the 2002 crop. The final count of dead fetuses or foals under the age of one week that reached the diagnostic center was 529, although it is known that there were more that did not get there. They arrived from 49 Kentucky counties, and while many, and while many were thoroughbreds, ultimately represented 18 different breeds. In a study released in October of 2001, through Kentucky Governor Paul Patton's office, the final tally was estimated at 5,100 foals, lost in total between the two years' crops. From the 2001 crop of all breeds, 1,356 foals, which accounted for 9% of the year's crop, were either stillborn or, or died within a week of birth. For the 2002 full crop for all breeds, it was estimated that just over 3,800, or 26% of the full crop was lost through spontaneous abortion. And now you've provided a bit of a breed breakdown here. So in 2001, thoroughbreds lost 516, or 5.3% of their total. Standardbreds lost 150, or 20.9% of their total. Uh, paints and quarter horses lost 550 foals. That's more than thoroughbreds, 
That's 22% of their uh, population. Saddlebreds and Tennessee walkers lost 140 foals in 2001. That was 7.2% of the population. So now for thoroughbreds, 2002 was particularly cataclysmic according to this uh, graph. Uh, in 2002, there was 2,998 foals lost. That's 30.5% of the population. Standardbreds went down a little bit, 142, or 19.8% of their total population. Paints and quarter horses also went down a bit, 409, or 16.4% of their population. And saddlebreds and Tennessee walkers went up quite a bit. They doubled, more than doubled. 2,076 were aborted in 2002, or 14.2%. Other breeds that were hit in lesser numbers included drafts, draft mules, and pleasure breeds. Likewise, in the state of Ohio, I still can't believe Ohio is connected to Kentucky, the Ohio Valley had also seen 3,000 mares affected, accounting for a 25% full loss in 2001 in late April and early May. The state also had the same pattern repeat to a lesser intensity in 2002. Len Harrison, director of the Livestock Diagnostic Center in Lexington, performed 9,484 lab tests over the course of three weeks, while helping to unravel the mystery. By September 30th, 2001, the equine community had for the most part accepted that the perfect storm of weird weather conditions, native vegetation, and caterpillar infestation had resulted in the deaths and illness of thousands of horses. It was at this time that the hybrid theory of caterpillars and molds took hold. In humans exposed to molds, reproductive problems, eye issues, and fluid on the heart can be caused by mycotoxin, and all of these problems were observed in the affected horses. After, after team member Steve Jackson's initial three positive tests for mycotoxin, which were then assumed to have been false positive, over 400 more tests were run and all came back negative. Later, however, researchers circled back to look again at these early positive tests. It was theorized that the 400 tests were run too late, or even that the mycotoxins were not present in the forage by that time at all, but may have been present elsewhere. Moving forward, there was great fear in the Kentucky horse industry that a repeat of this cluster could severely damage the reputation of Kentucky as a prime breeding location for horses. On September 14th of 2001, the results of the survey were released, and although they normally would have been front page news, dear, that, at that time of the year in 2001, I'm afraid they hit mm-hmm. the back pages. That's as close Very as they could get. Yeah. 133 farms had participated and helped to pinpoint definite environmental factors associated with the development of MRLS. Those included the strange weather pattern, a breeding date of February, 2001 for mare associate, mares associated with early loss, a moderate to high caterpillar concentration on all farms affected, the presence of wild black cherry trees on all farms concerned, and the presence of more than 50 mares on each farm. In a study released on October 5, 2001 through Governor Paul Patton's office, it was estimated that significantly more foals were lost to what was now known as MRLS or Mare Reproductive Loss Syndrome that had previously been anticipated, and it was projected that economic impact would be in the neighborhood of about 336 million through 2003. This figure, uh, shoot. 2003. Yeah, this figure was based on an estimated value of 85,142 in lost sales fees per horse. That's pretty good. Pretty good selling price for horses if that's your average. Mm-hmm. The study reported that the state aid that had earlier been requested would likely not come through as the state was experiencing a half billion dollar projected budget shortfall. However, it was felt that the study would help the equine industry in making a case for an application for federal aid. Over 100 scientists had spent 80 hours a week 
investigating over a 22-day period and felt that they had isolated the root of the problem. Removal of wild black cherry trees and the control of caterpillar populations was recommended. David Switzer, executive director of the Kentucky Thoroughbred Association, requested a study to fund an early warning system as proposed by the University of, Cal of California. David Switzer, executive director of the Kentucky Thoroughbred Association, requested a study to fund an early warning system as proposed by the University of Kentucky College of Agriculture to help protect future full crops from similar events. Researchers logged information about the climatic conditions that year to develop guidelines to help predict future recurrences. 2001 also saw the development of a MRLS monitoring website where vets could post foal and fetal losses as they were discovered. Pasture and tissue samples were saved for future studies. In fact, so many samples were taken that new freezers were required to store all of the samples. Today, the caterpillar population is largely controlled by removal of the area's wild black cherry trees. The shortage of available young livestock served to push prices up for 2001 and 2002 yearlings. MRLS occurred again, but in lesser degrees and with less intensity in Kentucky the following year in 2002. Overall, thoroughbred numbers dipped for a short period, using the year 2000 as a reference point. When 34,708 foals were registered in 2001, that number dropped to 34,674, and dropped again in 2002 to 32,827. Numbers rebounded in 2003 to 33,110. In comparison to the 1970s, however, when 20 to 25,000 thoroughbreds were regularly registered, those numbers are still considered strong. In 2003, a symposium was held in Kentucky that involved all the key players in the MRLS investigation. At that time, the same year researchers Webb and Karen McDowell ran a clinical trial that pointed researchers towards the uh, ETC, or Eastern Tent Caterpillar, exoskeleton as potentially being a piece of the puzzle. Between 2003 and 2008, full death numbers in Kentucky returned to normal with case numbers of 3 to 5 per year. An article written in 2005 noted that overall, the effect of the 2001 full deaths were felt only minimally at the track after concerns that there would be light fields. However, for 2003, 2004, and 2005, the Keeneland Select Yearling Sale, typically held in July, was cancelled and instead run in September in conjunction with the regular sale. The 2004 Kentucky Derby entrant, entrant Pollard's vision, inadvertently became the poster child of MRLS and its associated symptoms when the one-eyed horse ran in the Derby and the Preakness, the first one-eyed horse to do so. Hmm. That because, why would that be an issue? Because of depth problems or no just it's not very common to see a one-eyed horse anyway. especially oh, at okay. that level of competition okay in 2006 similar syndromes hit florida and new jersey to a lesser extent than the 2001 kentucky crisis in 2009 kentucky once again saw cases of mrls rise between may 15th and june 15th resulting in 13 full losses this was correlated with predicted increases in the uh, eastern tent caterpillar population and resulted in seven late foal and six early fetal deaths. Seven of these cases were seen in the thoroughbreds, while, what, uh, while one each was observed in an American saddlebred, a standard bred, a Rocky Mountain horse, an Oldenburg, a Gotland, and a grade mare. That reminds me about this, the joke about the bar on an American saddlebed, a standard bred, a Rocky Mountain horse, an Oldenburg, a Gotland, and a grade mare walked into a bar anyway. <laughs> Meanwhile, 
over in Australia. In 2004, Australian veterinary pathologist Kristen Todd Hunter started to look at a cluster of equine fetal deaths following two fetal loss outbreaks in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales that involved both early-term and later-term abortions. Over the next 10 years, working at a company called Vetnostics, Todd Hunter and colleague Angela Begg researched equine abortions caused by mystery agents. Todd Hunter noted that chronic inflammation affected more developed fetuses, resulting in them being expelled. She observed that changes took place in the fetal membrane, or amnion. Uh, the group then defined this as equine amniomitis and fetal loss, EAFL, and published a 2009 paper describing it. When the pair cultured the stomach and lung contents of 85 fetuses and stillbirths from the 2004 New South Wales abortion storm, they noticed a common environmental bacterium, corniform, and gram-negative rods that are not usually present in fetal tissue. In trying to rule out anything they could find, the group looked at Kentucky's 2001-2002 mare reproductive loss syndrome and its links to the eastern tent caterpillar. This connection led Todd Hunter to look at caterpillars native to the New South West Wales area, which proved to be Australia's processionary caterpillar, or bag shelter moth, Ocrogaster lunifer, aka itchy grub, itchy grub, <laughs> and the white cedar moth, Leptocneria reducta, which are attracted to Australia's black wattle trees, in addition to the caterpillar shedding its exoskeleton up to eight times a year. Once the larvae leave the nest, that nest structure falls apart and discards exoskeletons which are then spread by the wind. Todd Hunter embarked on her PhD studying the full death mystery under the supervision of Wayne Bryden and in conjunction with Judy Caudle Smith of the University of Queensland. They challenged groups of mirrors with whole caterpillars, caterpillar exoskeletons, and conducted thorough postmortems. Their findings showed that the exoskeleton of the processionary caterpillar can definitely cause both acute and chronic abortion, as well as a host of other problems. Her findings showed that each caterpillar's body contains two million hairs, each with little barbs or setae that can migrate quickly through a mare's intestine and invade both the uterus and the placenta. Only a small number of barbs are required to create a problem. Since the exoskeleton is broken down by bacteria, over the course of the migration, those same bacteria which are already present on the setae are brought into the uterus on the barbs. The placenta and fetus lack any immune defense to the bacteria and cannot stop the bacterial agents from proliferating. Todd Hunter was able to prove that 32% of the equine abortions in her area were attributable to the caterpillar link. In her research, Todd Hunter came upon a similar equine abortion cluster that occurred in Hungary in 2005. The bacteria C P S I make it up. P S I T T A C I. You know, people are just making these words up. They are. So you just make it up. Why? Why do they have to make it so difficult? Why can't it just be bacteria C dot Smith instead of this nonsense of Pisataki was implicated? Consequently, when another cluster occurred in Australia in 2016. Todd Hunter tested tissue from 180, sorry, 199 fetuses that had been collected from 54 different properties over a 170-kilometer square area. 21% had C. Sataki in affected fetal tissue, and 24% of the sick foals did as well. Todd Hunter continued searching and found that the C. Pisataki she had found in Australia was identical to that found in some species of Australian parrots. Her question was then... Could this bacterium be causing pregnancy losses in other regions? At that point, Todd Hunter started looking at all bird species as potential carriers of bacteria, as well as other species 
like flying foxes or fruit bats. Well, we have flying squirrels. Australia has flying foxes. I, I don't know. Elsewhere, maybe a case of great minds think alike. Researchers around the world have written papers on the problem. Just a handful include the following. Predating the 2001 Kentucky problem by a year. In a 2000 paper called Emergent Causes of Placentitis and Abortion by James M. Donahue, Ph.D., and Neil M. Williams, DVM, Ph.D., it stated that placentitis was the most common form of abortion in mares in central Kentucky. A 2008 paper by M.M. M. Sebastian et al., entitled Review Paper, Mare Reproductive Loss Syndrome, cited two hypotheses for the 2001 Kentucky issue. One, an Eastern tent caterpillar-related toxin with secondary bacterial invasion of the fetus leading to MRLs. 4. A breach of the gastrointestinal mucosal integrity by hairs of the eastern tent caterpillar that led to a bacterium invasion and ultimately result resulted in MRLS. A 2005 paper, oh, sorry, 2015 paper written by Igor Kniso of the University of Illinois entitled Update on Placentitis in Mares diagnosis and treatment, delves further into the infection theory. His study determined that once the infection was present, there were no medications that could turn the situation around. Interestingly, a 2013 paper noted that a similar syndrome had also hit dromedary camel camels in the western Sahara. You wouldn't think there'd be that many trees in the Sahara. No, but I guess they're a similar insect that still just makes its nest somewhere and yeah. dries up and blows away. And okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dung beetles. Mm-hmm. In conclusion, it appears that the cause of the full loss, both in both cases, Kentucky and Australia, was due to bacterium introduced to the mare's systems via the caterpillar's barbs, and the infectious agent was required from wildfowl in the area. Furthermore, in the case of Kentucky, it is possible that the two related issues occurring simultaneously, with the one affecting living horses' hearts and eyes possibly being connected to the caterpillars and their introduction of either bacterium or mold into the horses' systems. And there we go. Mm -hmm. um, I like that it ends with kind of a matter-of-fact statement that they're not sure still. Mm -hmm. It's still it's a, th a working theory. Yeah. So I feel like my original my original guess was kind of uh, proved right. Yes, yeah. And what I had read originally was all this stuff about Kentucky. And so I kind of knew there was a connection to eastern tent caterpillars, blah, blah. And I thought that was the answer. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, it wasn't until I went back and was researching this that I then continued to find more information and found that uh, Australian connection, which brought it further and mm -hmm. um, explained exactly the mechanisms, how it was introduced to the placenta, which I thought was interesting. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so. And I, it's also interesting that the, uh, you know, we're talking 2001 and you mentioned like nowadays we have email and stuff like that, but in 2001, they, email was a, yeah. th was a thing. And so. Well, and they, they did have that big kind of video conference yeah. with whatever, but. Yeah. Yeah, I think like uh maybe it just wasn't as common with well, some a video conference then wouldn't have involved computers. It would have been like uh simultaneous t uh broadcasts of oh, okay. video. So most likely it would have been one person talking and a bunch of people watching screens of mm -hmm. this of this kind of seminar. It is interesting though still that cuz we're seeing now like in in 1980 we had Kentucky had a similar 
incident, but it went un it went unremarked mm -hmm. upon. Most likely, you know, the people that were managing the farms this sort of took these losses in stride as just being part of the business of 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 fooling that you're going to have years of loss, and this mm -hmm. may if and obviously this would have stretched back more years than this, right? You know that there would be particular environmental and insect, you know, correlate, you know, coming together to create this this kind of perfect storm that would result in this. Yeah, and I think even it would just be attributed to bad luck, right? Yeah, because I think there, over time, sometimes people just go, well, you know, too bad, so sad. Carry on. Yeah, Hopefully yeah. next year is better. Well, that's but. the thing. We've, there's a saying: um, if you're going to have uh, livestock, you're going to have dead stock. Mm -hmm. And I, you heard that in a story. It was as stated by like a, kind of an old timer, you know, someone who had accepted the the fact that you know there's a certain amount of yeah bad luck that sometimes you're just going to have the misfortune or the fact that it's inevitable that there's going to be deaths mm -hmm. in in your in your flock or your herd or whatever. And I guess you know these people are willing to kind of just suck it up and just take the loss as bad as that was, in the hope that the next year will be better. Mm -hmm. Which is basically, like, especially thoroughbred breeding, your whole mentality is the next year is going to be, right. going to be better. Yeah. And Yeah, it's about breed the best of the best and hope for the best. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And But when we come to 2001, now we have this sort of more instant communication. So people are writing back and forth to each other. You don't have to pick up the phone and call someone and hope they're going to be there when you call. You know, or they're not out for lunch, or they're not doing something else, or they're not gone to some kind of conference somewhere. You know, you can contact them mm -hmm. via their email address, and so it created a situation where a we had ultrasounds, a new way to detect these deaths, and in a way that was kind of stunning because it wasn't it wasn't that you what you would normally think is the foal died during birth, mm -hmm. which is a pretty common way for things to happen. It's a very stressful. And you know, traumatic thing for for the mother and for the colt, uh, the foal to go to go through, but they're discovering that no, no, they're already dead. They're just inside the mare, mm -hmm. dead. That's a more stunning thing, I think, to discover for right. for people, right? Like you can accept that during this, you know, big thing of birth, that something might happen, it might go wrong. That's mm -hmm. pretty common. But to have it happen month a month before or whatever, that's that's much more devastating, I think. Or two months in. Which, or two months yeah. in, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. two months in. So yeah, it's um, yeah, I can just—it's kind of like a—it's a perfect storm of environmental factors to cause it, but it's also a perfect storm of technological, you know, advances that made it more made it more obvious what was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's the case with most most environment most of our technological advances have actually made these sort of thing these sort of connections easier to make. You know, have actually improved mm -hmm. policing and other and other you know and research and stuff like that in, in right. ways. That weren't possible in the past. But anyway, that was an interesting uh, mm -hmm. thing, dear. Yep. Story. Let's call it a story. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. So next time. Next time we'll be back with a little bit, hopefully... A bit of a later, little lighter, later story? Yeah, later story. What's the, what's the next story called? Next is, uh, this was a suggestion by a reader, and I'd never heard of this one before, and it is The Fine Cotton Affair. Okay. So it is a bit of a caper. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, folks, you know, you can write in and talk to us. We're here. We're here all the time. You can uh, go to our website at stinkydragon.com and you'll find our episodes there and you can leave a comment for us and we'll read it on the show. And so we got a comment from Kathy on episode two. That was, or was that episode three? Episode two of, uh, yeah, episode two of the podcast. We had a, a, a story about Edward Mybridge 
the photographer and uh, surprise murderer. So Kathy wrote in and said, Hello, David and Lisa. Outstanding series, Lisa. As a researcher, I can appreciate how much time it takes to collate this information, then roll it out in a few minutes. As a California history junkie, I was very interested in this latest episode about Mybridge, Leland Stanford, and several points in California that I am familiar with. Also, as a, as a lifelong Californian, I didn't recognize your pronunciation of Calistoga, but after listening to the story, realized that's what you were talking about. And as a lifelong Sacramento resident, it was fascinating to recall there was a racetrack downtown where our daughter currently lives. Love this series. Kudos, Kathy Lewin. Castelloga, Castelloya, I don't know. How, how would you say it? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the same as you, Castelloga. That's what it looks like, and that's what, how you pronounce it. That's all I have to say about it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, the idea of a racetrack in, in the downtown of any city is pretty amazing. In Vancouver, the racetrack is kind of on the outskirts of, of, of the, the city. So it's not, it's not really a downtown racetrack. But uh, unlike, say, the uh, one in, um, in Hong Kong, which is kind of right in the middle of the city. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty amazing. I'm not sure there are any comments on our episode three. Up, oh, I'm wrong. Louise wrote in. Thank you, Louise, for, uh, for uh, writing in on a pretty unpleasant episode, I felt. But Louise says, Sadly, abuse in sports and other organizations is still a relevant topic. It takes an incredible amount of strength and courage for survivors to come forward, which predators are counting on. Hopefully, educating people about historical cases like this one can help to make groups more vigilant and accountable in the future. Yes, I hope so, and I hope there's a sense of accountability, because I think that's a big part of the problem, is that it's easy to point your fingers at the villain, but somehow the people that enabled all this to happen get to walk away. It doesn't seem fair. All right, everyone. Well, thank you, Louise and Kathy, for your letters. I really appreciate that. And everyone, you too can write into the show. You just have to go to the website, sneakydragon.com. You'll find our episodes there, and you're welcome to leave comments underneath them. We will make sure to read them in future episodes. Also, we're asking if you could please take a little bit of time, and maybe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, for instance, maybe take the time to rate the episode or even give it a review. That would be very nice. For one thing, I like to read them. But also, it helps our shows become uh, noticeable or more noteworthy, and they get a bit more attention paid to them. So that's a big help for us. So with that said, I guess we will see you next episode with what sounds like a caper film uh, called A Fine Cotton Affair. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. My name's David. We'll see you soon. My name's Lisa. I'll hopefully see you with at least one eye. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye.